You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 76, The Munich Agreement Part 8, The Munich Agreement. This week, a big thank you goes out to Simon, Max, Jerry, Timezar, and Sam for their support on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special patron-only episodes released once a month. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. Also, that last individual, Sam, is the host of the Pax Britannica podcast, which discusses the history of the British Empire, a history that some might say we are actively covering the final chapters of in this podcast. Head on over to paxbritannica.info to find out more. It also appears that Spotify has started allowing you to review podcasts, so if you are listening to this podcast on Spotify and you are enjoying it, you can help out the show by giving it a five-star rating. For the first time in quite some time, I also have some corrections to discuss. I would like to thank patron Thomas for pointing out that I've not been using the word disinterested correctly, and I should have instead been using uninterested during some of the discussions in episode 74, especially when discussing Hitler's views and what he considered to be silly little details that Chamberlain kept trying to bring up in their meetings at Bad Gottesburg. I would also like to thank listener Ronald for pointing out that in the Warspite special, which was released about a year ago, I referred to the island of Walcheren as a Belgian island when it was in fact Dutch. I apologize to all of my listeners from the Netherlands, which according to the information I have access to, is the nation with the fifth most listeners to the podcast, which I never would have expected. With all of those administrative items out of the way, let's get back to history. As the British and French delegations made their way to the meetings, which would begin at 12.45pm on September 29th, the Sudeten crisis, which had occupied so many discussions over the previous months, was entering its terminal phase. They would meet with the German and Italian delegations at the Führerbach in Munich, a building which the French ambassador to Germany, André-François Poncet, would describe as, quote, Quote, a characteristic specimen of Hitlerian architecture, it repudiated detail, ornament, curve, and roundness of form, seeking to impress by the Doric simplicity of its lines and the massive aspect of its proportions. End quote. The participants in the meeting all had their own strategies when it came to what they were going to discuss. The French had perhaps the easiest, 
with Daladay describing it to his own delegation with the words, quote, Everything depends on the English. We can do nothing but follow them. On the British side, Chamberlain and the British were simply trying to get the final signatures on what had already been agreed to during the previous meetings between Hitler and Chamberlain. From the German and Italian perspective, they had a plan. Before the meetings, they had discussions, and they had agreed to allow Mussolini to present a German-developed plan as his own, detailing out the basic structure of an agreement. The goal was to get this text to be the basis for upcoming discussions, and it was felt that if Mussolini presented it as an Italian plan, which it really was not, it would help to gain British and French acceptance. The acceptance of the British and French was critical, as the Italians were already on side with the Germans, and they were the only four delegations in the room. Because missing from the list of delegations and from representatives in the room and during the discussions, as is always worth repeating, was any representation from Czechoslovakia. The country that was about to have a sizable portion of its total territory stripped from its control and handed over to Germany was not even in the room. When the meeting finally got started, Hitler would invite the other leaders into his private study, where a good portion of the following conversations would occur. After some short introductions, Mussolini would present the plan that had been previously discussed with the Germans. It had been helpfully written out in detail by the German Foreign Office in Berlin during the previous day. It contained five basic points, which I won't bother too much discussing, at least in detail, if only because they are in many ways reflected in the final agreement, which we will discuss in detail here in just a second. The key here was that the British and French both agreed that Mussolini's proposals could form the basis for the discussions on the day. It is probably worth mentioning at this point that these events were kind of a culmination of the relationship between the two Western powers and Mussolini during the 1930s. For years, they had been on very friendly terms with Mussolini and Rome, and the relationship between France and Italy had been foundational to French security. But over the years before 1938, Italian policy had started to decisively shift into the German orbit. After that, even after that shift, though, Mussolini was still seen as a reasonable political leader, and one that could and would be a moderating influence on Hitler in the time of crisis. This tainted the ability of the British and French to fully understand Mussolini's actions and motivations in the years before the war. For example, British Ambassador Henderson would describe the proposals made by Mussolini as, quote, tactfully put forward as his own a combination of Hitler's and the Anglo-French proposals, end quote. Which is really funny because it, it was all Hitler here. All, all Hitler, 100%. I will throw out there that while the two Western leaders were wrong in the evaluation of Italian motivations in this case, Mussolini would actually often urge Hitler to caution over the following year and before the war started, he just had no real power to actually influence the actions of the German leader. Back at Munich, his proposals had precisely the effect that had, they had been designed for, and the conversations that followed would be a detailed debate of the specifics of Mussolini's proposals. Some clauses were agreed to quite quickly, while others would quickly become mired in lengthy debates. One of the issues that would arise several times in the discussion was around compensation both to the Czechoslovak government and non-German citizens that would be leaving the country or the territory that was being handed over to the Germans. Chamberlain often led these discussions, constantly questioning how the government in particular would be compensated for so much infrastructure being ceded to Germany. Hitler, as ever, stood firm on the concept that in their retreat, the Czechoslovakian government should take nothing with them and they would receive no compensation. 
Chamberlain was undeterred and even at one point brought up the topic of how livestock should be handled. Could it be moved out of the areas that Germany was moving into? Did it have to stay? Were they going to pay the the people who had that livestock? Having to deal with such specifics was never Hitler's strong suit, and eventually it moved him into losing his temper completely, yelling, quote, Our time is too valuable to be wasted on such trivialities, end quote. One thing that any student of these events, or any events during this period, has to keep in mind is that while today we translate everything very easily and quickly, and everything on this podcast is in English, within the room itself there were several language barriers. Mussolini was really the only one that could at least understand everything being said around him, while the others were completely dependent on translators for some portion of the discussion. This slowed everything down, and I'm sure it also exaggerated any impatient feelings from the participants, as items that they did not want to discuss were talked about, then translated, then replied to, then translated, then responded to, then translated, and then on and on and on. Just after 3 p.m., the meeting paused for lunch, and it would begin again about an hour later at 4.30. During the break, Mussolini's proposals had been fully translated into all the applicable languages, which made it a bit easier, but the disagreements about some of the details did not go away. Still up for debate were the precise timetables during which the territory would be ceded during the initial occupation phase, from October 1st to the 10th. There was also some wording around the guarantees that would be provided by the various nations to Czechoslovakia after the territory transfers had been made. In anticipation for the eventual ironing out of these details, two representatives from the Czechoslovak government would arrive, a, the Czech minister from Berlin, Dr. Wojciech Masny, and Dr. Hubert Masaryk of the Czechoslovak Foreign Office. They were not actually brought into the meeting, <laughs> of course not but they were put in an adjoining room so that the final agreement could be detailed to them when the time arrived to do so, and then they could communicate it to Prague. Their arrival did not bring the four leaders within the room any closer to some kind of conclusion. Hitler was becoming even more impatient as the afternoon gave way to the evening. Maps were brought out for purpose of discussion, and there were several smaller groups that kind of broke away to discuss some details, which further inhibited forward progress. Uh, because they kind of fractured all the conversations. The German plan had always been to have the entire thing sorted out before 9pm, and a dinner had already been scheduled to begin at that time to celebrate. But as that time grew closer and disagreements remained, another pause was called. The British and French were invited to partake in the dinner anyway, but they declined. During this break, with the British delegation back in their own rooms, the two representatives of Czechoslovakia received their first firm information about what was being discussed. At 10 p.m., they were brought in to see Wilson, who outlined the agreement, gave them a map of the areas that would be immediately changing hands, and then left the room. Wilson left Frank Ashton Gwatkin of the Foreign Office to answer any questions. The Czechoslovak ministers certainly had questions, comments, thoughts, and concerns. But Ashton Gwatkin would eventually just say, and, and I'm quoting here, quote, If you do not accept, you will have to settle your affairs with the Germans absolutely alone. Perhaps the French will say this to you more kindly, but believe me, they share our views. They are disinterested, end quote. The Czechoslovak representatives were only informed of the agreement because by the time that the conference really got going again after 10 p.m., the small wording changes Still had to be made, maybe, but the main structure of the agreement was certainly already in place and would not change, 
and nobody really expected it to. All the eventual details would be worked out over the course of a few hours, and before 2 a.m. on September 30th, the four leaders would put their signatures on the agreement. Of course, there was an attempt to have some level of ceremony even at such a late hour, with the typewritten agreement set on a mahogany table for the leaders to sign. But when Hitler walked up to the table to sign first, he found that the inkwell that had been placed beside the agreement was empty, a problem that was quickly sorted, and the signatures were then completed and the agreement was official. Instead of summarizing, because the agreement is so short, I'm just going to read it here in full. Shout out to the Yale Law School, which is a great source for full text in English of these types of agreements. They even present them in, a, in what is very close to a plain text format, which as a web developer I greatly appreciate. So here is the full text of the Munich Agreement. Quote, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, and Italy, taking into consideration the agreement which has already been reached in principle for the cession to Germany of the Sudeten German territory, have agreed on the following terms and conditions governing that said cession and the measures consequent therein. And by this agreement, they each hold themselves responsible for the steps necessary to secure its fulfillment. 1. The evacuation will begin on 1st October. 2. The United Kingdom, France, and Italy agree that the evacuation of the territory shall be completed by the 10th October, without any existing installations having been destroyed, and that the Czechoslovak government will be held responsible for carrying out the evacuation without damage to the said installations. 3. The conditions governing the evacuation will be laid down in detail by an international commission composed of representatives of Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, and Czechoslovakia. 4. The occupation by stages of the predominantly German territory by German troops will begin on 1st October. The four territories marked on the attached map will be occupied by German troops in the following order. The territory marked number 1 on the 1st and 2nd of October, the territory marked 2 on the 2nd and 3rd of October, the territory marked 3 on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of October and the territory marked 4 on the 6th and 7th of October. The remaining territory of predominantly German character will be ascertained by the aforesaid International Commission forthwith and be occupied by German troops by the 10th of October. 5. The International Commission referred to in paragraph 3 will determine the territories in which plebiscites is to be held. These territories will be occupied by international bodies until the plebiscite has been completed. The same commission will fix the conditions in which the plebiscite is to be held taking as a basis the conditions of the Saar plebiscite. The commission will also fix a date, not later than the end of November, on which the plebiscite will be held. 6. The final determination of the frontiers will be carried out by the International Commission. The commission will also be entitled to recommend to the four powers, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, and Italy, in any certain exceptional cases, minor modifications in the strictly ethnographic determination of the zones that will be transferred without plebiscite. Seven. There will be a right of option into and out of the transferred territories, the option to be exercised within six months from the date of the agreement. The German Czechoslovak Commission shall determine the details of the option, consider ways of facilitating the transfer of population, and settle questions of principle arising from said transfer. 8. The Czechoslovak government will, within a period of four weeks from the date of this agreement, release from their military and police forces any Sudeten Germans who may wish to be released, and the Czechoslovak government will within the same time period release Sudeten German prisoners who are serving terms of imprisonment for political offenses. End quote. So there's a lot there, but a few pieces to discuss. Obviously, the International Commission would be very important, and it would work out many of the precise details when the heads of state 
we're not in a position to really discuss them. Also, it would happen incredibly quickly. Um, the first meeting of the International Commission would happen less than 24 hours after the agreement was signed. You will also note that none of Chamberlain's concerns about remuneration made their way into the final text. Another important note on and a concession to Germany was the reference to the conditions of the Saar plebiscite when setting the rules for the upcoming plebiscites in Czechoslovakia. This was a reference to the fact that new citizens of the Sudeten areas would not be allowed to vote, and only those that had been living in the areas for many years would be allowed to participate. This was a German attempt to reduce the effects of the fact that the areas had been in Czechoslovakia for almost 20 years. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. With the agreement signed, there was still the task of presenting it to Czechoslovakia, and that started with those two representatives in the other room. Hitler and Mussolini did not participate in this meeting, and when Masaryk and Masny were brought in, Masaryk would describe the atmosphere as oppressive. By all accounts, the French delegation was quite downcast during the meeting, which makes sense given the fact that they had spent months assuring the Czechoslovak government in every way possible that they would help protect them against German aggression. Now they had just signed an agreement that gave away one-fifth of the nation's total territory without any bloodshed. Unfortunately, at least when it came to how the information would be framed when Prague was informed, the information did not first arrive from the British or French or even from those Czechoslovak delegations in Munich. It would instead arrive from the German representative in the Czechoslovak capital. It would be delivered at 6.20 a.m. in the morning when the foreign minister was brought out of bed to receive the information from the Germans, with the full text of the agreement also provided. 
This included not just the information that the occupation of various areas on the border would begin in just 18 hours at midnight on October 1st, but also that the government had just a few hours to dispatch two representatives to the all-important International Commission, which would meet at 5 p.m. that very day in Berlin. Very shortly after this news was delivered to the foreign minister, President Banesh was also informed, to which he would say, quote, It's a betrayal, which will be its own punishment. They, the Western democracies, think that they will save themselves from war and revolution at our expense. They are wrong. End quote. Back in Munich, Chamberlain had one more goal of the meetings, and that was to meet with Hitler on the morning of September 30th. During this meeting, his goal was to get Hitler to sign an agreement, which Chamberlain considered to be politically very important. The agreement was written by Chamberlain, and he planned to release it to the press immediately after Hitler agreed. And it read, quote, We, the German Führer and the Chancellor and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night in the Anglo-German Naval Agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries, and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference, and thus to contribute to assure the peace of Europe. End quote. Chamberlain thought that such an agreement was critical, but by all accounts Hitler cared basically not at all <laughs> with its contents. He read it, he quickly signed it, and then promptly forgot about it, or at least it did not influence his future actions in any way whatsoever. Chamberlain would then leave Munich and head back to London, where he would arrive at 5.30pm. He was met once again by the press at the airport, and he spoke very positively of the developments which had occurred, not just of the Munich Agreement, but also the discussion and agreement with Hitler from that morning, with what we just talked about. When he arrived back at number 10 Downing Street, he would once more address the assembled press, and he would utter his famous line, Quote, my good friends, for the second time in our history, the British Prime Minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. End quote. In terms of sound bites that have aged very, very, very poorly, this has to be on some kind of best of list. It's worth noting, though, that no small part of Chamberlain's cheery viewpoint was driven by the small agreement that Hitler had signed just before he left, and he was not strictly referring to the Munich Agreement. Back in Prague on the morning of September 30th, Benesch would meet with the military and political leaders of Czechoslovakia. A key part of the decision-making process at this point was not based on the ability of Czechoslovakia to defend itself from German aggression. Everybody, including the Czechoslovak military, knew how that would end. But instead, the key belief or the key discussion point, which Benesh and many other leading ministers sort of shared a, a general feeling about, was that even if Czechoslovakia went to war, France and Britain would by this point simply abandon them. This was the message that had been delivered time and time again during the previous month of negotiations, agreements, coercions, etc. I bring up this fact because it's very frequent that at roughly this point in the narrative, somebody will ask the question of why Czechoslovakia did not just fight. Many critics of appeasement would ask this question maliciously, but even a more moderate and reasonable person, many listeners to this podcast, might also ask that question. 
And the answer is simple. They knew that they could not win, and they absolutely believed that if they did fight, it would just reinforce their complete abandonment by Britain and France. By accepting the agreement before them, they at least might preserve Czechoslovakia as a nation, even if it was reduced in size and power. It was then possible that a war might start in the near future, and the remains of Czechoslovakia might profit from Germany's hopeful defeat. What would happen after September 1938 and the complete destruction of Czechoslovakia in early 1939 were not something that was considered to be a likely course of action, and even if it was, that was just the same fate that would have befallen Czechoslovakia if they decided to go to war in, on September 30th, 1938. As it was, Banesh would tell the Council for Defense of the Republic that history, quote, had no parallel for dealing with a sovereign state in such a manner. We are deserted and betrayed, end quote. He would go on to say that Czechoslovakia had not been defeated by Hitler, but instead by her friends. The new premier of the government, a government that had recently been put in place after the previous one had fallen due to the crisis, would deliver a message by radio broadcast at 5 p.m., stating that, quote, I am experiencing the gravest hour of my life. I would have been prepared to die rather than to go through this. We have had to choose between making a desperate and hopeless defense, which would have meant the sacrifice of an entire generation of our adult men, as well as our women and children, and accepting, without a struggle and under pressure, terms which are without parallel in history for their ruthlessness. We were deserted. We stood alone. This broadcast was not sort of the official agreement of the Czechoslovak government that had been delivered earlier in the day, and it had stated that it declared before the entire world its protest against the decisions that were made without its involvement. Back in Munich, Meserich would record that, quote, they were then finished with us, and we were allowed to go. The Czechoslovak Republic, as constituted within the frontiers of 1918, had ceased to exist. When the French ambassador in Prague met with the foreign minister and attempted to provide some kind of explanation, the Czechoslovak foreign minister, Krafta, would say, in a statement that would prove to be about as true as any statement can possibly be, quote, We have been forced into this situation. Now everything is at an end. Today it is our turn. Tomorrow, it will be the turn of others. End quote. There would be some small adjustments to the exact German concessions by the International Commission, and the final damage would be 11,000 square kilometers of territory, which included 2.8 million Sudeten Germans and 800,000 Czechs. The surrender of territory was also not complete after the German agreements. Poland would also continue its demands and would eventually receive about 650 square miles around Teschen while Hungary would get even more on November 2nd. Somehow, it was far worse than it looked on the map, even though the map looked really, really bad, and, and all those, you know, square feet of Czechoslovakia went away. Because from a military perspective, within all that territory that had been ceded to the Germans, were the Czechoslovakian fortifications, which had been built through so much time, labor, and money, and were considered the second strongest in the world only to the Maginot Line in France. Economically, the toll was also staggering. About two-thirds of all of the coal in Czechoslovakia now passed to Germany. Over three-quarters of chemical production, cement, textiles, iron, steel, and electrical generation. Rail connections also proved to now be problematic, with many routing through German territory, effectively removing those lines as useful tools to the Czechoslovakian economy. 
Overall, it was a disaster for what was left of the nation. Knowing what we know now and what happens next in the story of Czechoslovakia, which we will discuss next episode, it's likely that the decisions made by all parties on September 30th, 1938, would have been different. But as with so many other moments of the interwar years, the decision makers in 1938 did not have the luxury of knowing the future. For France and Britain, the full consequences of their actions in Munich would not be truly felt for almost a year. For Czechoslovakia, that reckoning would come much, much sooner. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you will join me next episode for what will be the final episode in our discussion of the Munich Agreement, in which we will take the history of Czechoslovakia from the end of September 1938 into the spring of 1939, when it will be fully absorbed into the German Reich.